and welcome to the June edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Davens. Coming up on this programme, I'll be speaking to Director of Programming for JW3, Rachel Grimwald, to find out what's in store for us this month. Also, I'm Kate Fulton, and I'm going to be speaking to Mia Fell, one of the people who started the new Jewish community in Dubai. She'll be speaking with a few other families at JW3 on Tuesday the 15th at 8pm. And the event is entitled Jewish Life in Dubai, the Early Years. I'm Tony Honigberg and I'll be talking to Netan Mayer, Professor of Judaic Studies at Portland State University, about his book, The Cholera Wedding, East European Jews' Magical Ritual to End an Epidemic, and his talk at JW3 on Thursday the 10th of June at 730 I'm John Kay, and I'll be talking to Jonathan Paris, Middle East expert on the Gaza conflict and Iran. As if all of that isn't enough, we'll also have a delicious-sounding idea courtesy of our Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips, and our rabbinic thought for the month will come from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg of New North London, Mazorti Synagogue. But before all that, with a round-up of the Jewish news from the past month, I'm Vivian Krieger. Eleven days of fighting between Israel and Hamas ended with a ceasefire on Friday the 21st of May as both sides claimed victory. It's believed 242 Palestinians died and there were 13 Israeli deaths. Israel accepted an Egyptian initiative for a bilateral, unconditional ceasefire. The Israeli Defence Minister Benny Gantz said the Gaza offensive had yielded unprecedented military gains. The BBC reported that Hamas was shocked that Israel was able to kill its men when they believed they were safe in underground tunnel networks. The UK government expressed concern about the humanitarian situation in Gaza. It's widely believed the ceasefire will hold until it's tested by a crisis, which could be a rocket fired out of Gaza or Palestinian families being evicted from the occupied eastern side of Jerusalem and replaced by Jewish settlers. Here, the number of anti-Semitic incidents recorded in May was more than any other since records began. 325 anti-Semitic acts were reported to the Community Security Trust, of which 116 were online and 209 were in person. The Board of Deputies President, Marie van der Zyl, said it was extremely worrying but unsurprising and that every time there's an escalation in violence between Israel and Hamas, anti-Israel activists vent their anger on British Jews. The incident which attracted most attention was the convoy of cars draped in Palestinian flags which drove through northwest London with men believed to be from Bradford shouting vile abuse about Jews through megaphones. Back in Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu has angrily criticised a newly agreed coalition which looks set to remove him from power after 12 years as Prime Minister. Eight parties reached an agreement to work together to form a new government, but parliamentary backing is still needed, and Mr Netanyahu wants to block it. However, if the coalition succeeds, the leader of the right-wing Yamina party, Naftali Bennett, would serve first as Prime Minister before handing over to Yair Lapid of the centrist Yesh Atid. And for the first time in decades, the government could include an Israeli Arab party. A five-year-old boy who was orphaned when his Israeli family was killed in a cable car tragedy in northern Italy has been moved out of intensive care. Itan Biran lost his parents, little brother and great-grandparents in the accident in which he was the only survivor. Nine other people also died. It's understood that Itan's aunt and grandmother have yet to tell him what happened to his family.
The actress Maureen Lipman has resigned from the Actors' Union Equity over its support for a pro-Palestine march at which an anti-Semitic banner was displayed. Equity had encouraged performers to attend the rally. Many members questioned its actions in taking such a political stance, asking how UK Jewish performers were meant to feel safe at such an event. The sitcom star Sanjeev Bhaskar said the banner at the march was appalling and was designed to stoke up religious hate. And finally, Simon Cowell has pulled out of X Factor Israel. He was due to judge the singing competition later this year. It had been delayed since December 2020. A source close to Mr Cowell declined to say whether the decision had been taken as a result of the Gaza conflict. Viv, thank you very much indeed. Right, well, let us begin the June edition of The Jewish Views in traditional fashion. We are joined once again by Rachel Grunwald to go through some of the offerings in store at JW3 throughout the coming month. A very warm welcome to you, Rachel. Let's dive straight in because I know you've got lots to talk about. And it would appear that June is going to be a rather, hmm, shall we say, diverse selection and quite literally diverse selection. Phil, I think that's right. Hello to everybody who's listening. It's lovely to be speaking to you again about what is going on at JW3. So yes, at JW3, we say that the diversity of our programme reflects the diversity of our community. And there is so much that you can find out about this month. So many different places across the world that you can travel to through the wonders of the portal that is JW3. On the 6th of June, we have an event that we are really very proud of which is called Black Lives Matter Everywhere One Year On. And you may remember that one year ago, JW3 convened a really important community conversation called Black Lives Matter Everywhere to ask what was the Jewish community's response to the George Floyd murders and the Black Lives Matter movement. And as you will probably know, the community has really taken this to heart. The Board of Deputies has released the report of the commission into the inquiry in racial inclusivity in the Jewish community. And we will be bringing people together again on June the 6th to ask, what do we need to do next? But as I said, it's about diversity. And if you fancy some entertainment, then on June the 9th, you can join us to hear George McGee talk about Peggy Lee. If you like the macabre, you might like to join us on June the 10th, when as part of our partnership series with Yivo, we'll be looking at the phenomenon of the cholera wedding. And that was a bizarre ritual that emerged in East European Jews in the 19th century to stop the spread of an epidemic, the community would marry its most vulnerable and marginalised members, that's orphans or beggars, to each other in a wedding held in a cemetery, a, a tradition which I think we're all very pleased nobody has thought to revive for the pandemic we're in at the moment. Uh, and <laughs> Quite. <laughs> Just when you thought the pandemic couldn't get any worse. No, we, uh, JW3 has no hopes of inspiring a revival in that particular ritual, but we do invite you to come along and hear about it. And also, if you join us on June the 15th, you can hear about the early years of Jewish life in Dubai. I did promise this was international. On the 17th of June, we have the amazing Canadian singer-songwriter Ben Kaplan doing a concert called Refugee Love Songs. On the 23rd of June, we'll hear about how Israel faces Iran and the world in the Middle East with an uncertain America, which I know will be on many people's minds at the moment. 
On the 29th of June, we have a new course from the brilliant Clive Lawton entitled Will Africa Rise? And that's in addition to all our regular classes and courses on current affairs and modern Jewish literature and William Tyler teaching twice a week. I mean, you're spoiled for choice. Well, this is exactly it, isn't it? And actually, one thing I can't help but observe is that for those of us who are sort of slightly reeling from the fact that some of us still can't go away to the parts of the world that we're desperate to go to, well, I can't help but think that JW3 have done something to kind of bring that a little bit to us. Now, we've got an awful lot still to get through and I'm very up against time. So I'm not going to stand in your way to tell us what else we can look forward to this yeah. month. It's packed. Absolutely, Phil. And you're right. I like to think of it as a JW3 armchair traveller. So welcome to all armchair travellers. Come fly with us. Now, for young people in their 20s and 30s, <laughs> we have some other really exciting events. On June the 8th, we have My Big Fat Jewish Body. A night of self-love and body liberation in the Jewish community. And on June the 15th, we have a night of storytelling with Sephardi Voices UK. If you have small children, especially if they are Hebrew speakers, then you will love, on June the 20th, our Children's Hebrew Theatre Festival with the Israeli Hasha Theatre, who are on tour. And this is in-building, Phil. This is in-building. Oh. We'll have adaptations of The Ugly Duckling and Pinocchio for little ones aged four to seven, and a new play for teenagers, all in-building, safely socially distanced. We'll be doing three performances with only 50 people in each. And we love our Israeli audiences at JW3, and we know that you are late bookers. People... <laughs> Chop, chop, book now. You really don't want to miss it. And, and Phil, the final thing I'll say is everything apart from the Children's Theatre Festival that I've been talking to you about has been online. But June is a month of two halves. On June the 21st, the UK government roadmap is set to release all social distancing. That's what we hear. Now, the Finchley roadmap... I see what you did there. See what you did there. Very good. Thank you very much. (laughs) Eventually roadmap has it uh, that if that holds, then we too will be bringing much more back into the building. Antenatal classes, our wonderful craftenoon, that's our Sunday afternoon free craft activity, will be back. And your listeners will be delighted to hear that our beach should be opening at the very end of June. I'm sorry. Hold the front page. Say that again. What? The beach at JW3 will be reopening at the very end of June. Hey, fantastic. Rachel Grunwald, Director of Programming at JW3. Thank you so much. And of course, if you want any more information on any of the events that Rachel's spoken about, you should go to the JW3 website, which as ever is jw3.org.uk. Thank you, Rachel. You're listening to The Jewish Views, an association with JW3. Now, many of us are used to associating the country of Dubai with no Jewish presence, maybe even an anti-Jewish feeling, with those Jews going visiting for a luxury holiday, hiding their Jewishness. But our next guest, Mia Fell, is going to tell us what the real situation is there and why Dubai is actually the opposite of hostile towards its Jewish guests or visitors. So what's your your connection with Dubai? I worked in Dubai from... February 2010 to September 2013. So I was there for about three and a half years. I'm a banking lawyer and I had a had a contract there, which I ended up extending because I was having such a good time there. So that's fundamentally my connection. And I guess, you know, you could say that I was one of the families who planted the seeds, if you like, for the current community, although there were several other members, you know, at the time, of the community at the time who, who also planted seeds. But a number of us were there planting seeds, if you like, and, and living there as Jews. 
just go back, row back a bit, because I want to I hear about the seeds and, and what that actually means. But describe Dubai for those of us who haven't been. What Does it feel sort of European? Does it feel quite, I, thought, I sort of think of it as quite deserty. So it is deserty. It's, it is very Middle Eastern, but it's also very, very modern. You know, you can have a fantastic lifestyle there. They have all of the amenities that one requires, fantastic shopping, wonderful weather. And, you know, of course, there is a, a draw to it because you can earn a tax-free salary. People there are very, very nice. The Emiratis have a very calm demeanour. There are rules, of course. It is a Muslim region, seven Emirates, and it is a Muslim region. So you do have to abide by the rules. You can't drink in public places unless they you know, you're in a licensed bar or restaurant, which is, you know, fair enough. And there are some other rules that you have to abide by. But it's very modern. It's a fantastic lifestyle. I think certainly any of us panellists who are going to be speaking on the 15th of June with the JW3 have nothing but praise for Dubai. We, we all loved our time there. In fact, we, we very much miss it. Jewishly, people felt there was actually nothing there, and you wouldn't go if you were if you were a Jew. You'd be frightened because if you'd go to Israel, there would be something in your passport saying that you'd been to Dubai and you wouldn't be welcome again in Israel. Is that that's not the com- case? No, that's a complete misnomer. I mean, <laughs> when I was there, I used to travel to Israel from Dubai. There were no direct flights until recently, until we, you know, the signing of the Abraham Accords. There were no direct flights. You'd fly via predominantly by Jordan but you'd arrive at Dubai airport and they'd say would you like your luggage checked in all the way to Tel Aviv and I'd say yes please and on my way back where have you been I've been you know through immigration I've been to Israel many thanks in you come you know so I think that's a complete misnomer in stamps and so on I had family members who had stamps on their passport who visited me at the time that don't care about the stamps you know and actually I don't actually think that that, that they have a problem with Israel fundamentally at all anyway. Certainly the Abraham Accords are showing us that and proving that to us. It sends, you know, the signing of the Abraham Accords send a very strong message of peace throughout the Middle East or hope, I would say, throughout the Middle East. In my view, I don't think, you know, there's never, I don't think the Emiratis have ever been anti-Semitic or anything like that. We certainly, I told plenty of my Arabic friends that I was Jewish and never felt any anti-Semitism towards me at all. I just think that sometimes politics is a barrier to possibility and sometimes yeah. it opens doors, as we're seeing now. So it's just politics, you know. Certainly at the time that we were there, because we're talking now about two different times. There's, there's the Dubai now, post-signing of the Abraham Accords, where being Jewish openly is perfectly acceptable. You, know, you can walk down, the, the, the men can wear their kippots and sit hanging out if they want to. Back when I was there in 2010... That wasn't actually, you know, admittedly, we weren't sort of walking around with signs on our heads saying we're Jewish, put it that way. I wasn't afraid to tell anybody I was Jewish, but equally, and I never, as I said, I never felt any anti-Semitism to those who knew that I was Jewish, but it wasn't something that we were necessarily open about either. So, you know, it, it's a different time now. The time in, now is different to when we were there in 2010 up to 2014, I would say. When you said before about planting seeds, what seeds and why did you feel the, the need to, to plant something there? Well, interestingly, I think, you know, when I, when I went to Dubai, you know, I was at the time a single Jewish female girl aged around 32. And I think that 
there were some questions from family members and community members. You know, what are you doing? Why are you going to Dubai? And predominantly, it was a fantastic work opportunity, lifestyle opportunity, and so on. And when I went, I did have a couple of Jewish friends who were living there. Two of them were on the panel, Sean and Simon. And I went for a long weekend uh, to visit. And this is something we talk more about on our panel discussion, which, you know, hopefully if people join on the 15th of June, they'll hear more. And I do recall they'd arranged a Friday night dinner at the only other, they knew two, one other family, Rana and Giacomo. Rana's also on the panel. And she lived in a villa surrounded by five mosques. And we, I went for Shabbos dinner and they made, you know, the boys made Kiddish and so on. And I think the idea is that, you know, we all came from backgrounds with very, you know, strong Jewish identities, religious, not religious, sec, it doesn't matter, whatever the denomination. We've all grown up in backgrounds where we have strong Jewish identities. So it was important for us to somehow retain that and be proactive even if we had to be discreet about it, which which we were. And slowly but surely, we all started connecting and meeting more and more Jews who were coming out of the woodwork. And we, start, we, we then flew Chabad rabbis over to help us with services. Rana's husband, Giacomo, brought over a Sefer Torah in a golf bag, hidden in a golf bag. And we all, and we, we had, you know, the, the Chabad rabbis bought mezuzahs, which we put on the inside of our doors. We've got some really incredible stories to share, which is one of the things we're going to be doing on the 15th of June. Amazing stories about how lots of Jews just came out of the woodwork. Suddenly there was an elderly Jewish woman who thought she'd been alone in Dubai for years and suddenly she found us and she was so happy. And actually some people's identities became even stronger because when you're faced with a situation where you're a minority, particularly in a Muslim world, you you sometimes your identity only only you know only serves to, your experiences only serve to strengthen your identity. Did you have a plan? Did you did you or did it sort of grow organically? Did you have in your mind you know we would like to create a community and here's how we're going to do it? No, I think. I think you're right to say, Kate, that it, it, it did grow organically. When the first Seder that I we had, there were six of us. Although, interestingly, and this is one of the other funny stories, when I, it was Simon Sharon, myself, a non-Jewish friend of a friend, and then somebody else, there were six of us at the table having Seder night. And I distinctly remember Simon said to me, and this is in 2010, you know there's an alternative Seder tonight where there's 30 people. And I didn't believe him. I said, no chance. And I've only come to realise in the last few months, it was Michael Nates, who's one of the panellists, Michael and Martine, they were actually holding that Seder. Bizarrely, wow. and I had no idea. So, but we didn't have a plan. Just to go back to your question. We didn't have a plan. Things grew organically. And I think what you'll hear, you know, on the 15th of June, which is really interesting as well, is that you have to remember that there are actually a lot of cultural similarities between Jews and Muslims anyway. So there were things that would happen every day that would remind us of the fact we were Jewish. I, I, I Just to give you a small amusing example, I remember that I, I offered my, my, my boss, who became a very good friend of mine, knew I was Jewish, Mohammed, my ex-boss Mohammed, became an ex, a, 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 you know, a close friend of mine, attended my orthodox jewish wedding in 2011 in london you know which was a really big honor for my family and i and i remember popping into his office and i offered him i can't even remember what it was i offered him you know some dates or something some some food and he looked at me and he said 
is this Sharia compliant? And I just found it really amusing because it reminded me of my papa who would always, you know, I'd offer him things and he would say, is it kosher? You know, is it strictly kosher? Those sorts of things. Yeah. So things would happen. You're, you'd recommend people visiting and not having any fears, not, not, to, not to feel anxious. And it's a place that, that we, should, we, should, we should visit maybe. Well, there's no need to feel anxious. There, there's a community there now that's thriving, that's public with a president and, 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 and there's actually a Chabad, there's actually a few communities, there's a Chabad community and a sort of more, I guess, united synagogue community, but everybody's welcome. You know, I've got friends from all denominations, secular as well, and everybody's welcome the, at these services. And there's also Chief Rabbi, Chief Rabbi Yehuda Sana, who, who's based in New York. He's really wonderful. And certainly I would highly recommend people visit. It's a, a really interesting place. And you can feel very comfortable to be Jewish. They've got kosher restaurants now. They're doing the gentleman that catered my wedding. It now has a, a kosher kitchen in one of the hotels. It's perfectly fine. You, you, you can feel totally comfortable. Thank you very much, Mia. And the event is Jewish Life in Dubai, the early years. And we look forward to hearing it on Tuesday, the 15th of June at 8 p.m. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. My guest this month is Natan M. Mayer, Professor of Judaic Studies at Portland State University, and we're going to talk about his lecture, The Cholera Wedding, East European Jews' Magical Ritual to End an Epidemic, which he'll be giving on Thursday the 10th of June at 7.30pm. Natan, welcome to The Jewish Views, and thank you for coming on to the programme. Before we talk about your lecture. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. I teach Jewish history at Portland State University, as you mentioned, in Oregon. I'm also the chair of our Judaic Studies program, and my field of specialization is European Jewish history, and more specifically, the Jews of Russia and Poland before the Holocaust. And you've written books, one of which your lecture is based on, which we discussed a little while ago, which is called Stepchildren of the Stettel, the Destitute, Disabled and Mad of Jewish Eastern Europe, 1800 to 1939. But you've, you also wrote another one, didn't you, called Kiev, Jewish Metropolis, which is a history of the Jewish people in Kiev. And you also serve as a museum consultant and lead study tours of Eastern Europe with ALET tours. How did you come across this particular ritual, which we're going to speak about now? Well, as I was doing research for the book that you mentioned, Stepchildren of the Shtetl, which is a study of the outcasts of the Jewish community in Eastern Europe, I was going through all of the different kinds of historical sources that seemed relevant to this particular topic. So for example, memoirs and articles from the Hebrew and Yiddish and Russian press. And actually very soon, very early on in my research, I started hearing about this ritual that took place during cholera epidemics in the 19th century. And the more research I did, the more I heard about it. And so it seemed to me pretty quickly that this needed to be a major focus of my research because this strange ritual was actually focused on the outcasts of the Jewish community. It, it involved marrying them to each other in the cemetery as a remedy for the epidemic, as a way to stop the epidemic and drive it away. 
And did it actually stop the epidemic and drive it away? Well, my theory is that because it was understood to be a last resort cholera or later on other epidemics, that it tended to be used relatively late in the epidemiological trajectory. And so therefore, once they carried out the ritual, the disease had probably taken its course in whichever town or city we're talking about. And it might have been another week or another couple of weeks before the epidemic seemed to have left the town. And of course, people who use magic are often willing to rationalize whatever outcome it is that they see. And therefore, for them, they could probably say that it worked. It wasn't that they married people who had cholera to each other. It was that they took two people who were among these marginalized folks that I study in my book, who are, for example, beggars or people with physical disabilities or with various developmental disabilities. They were often known as the town fools. And they would marry those people to each other. And the idea was that when they did that, that would stop the epidemic and people would stop dying of cholera. Is this because they were unlikely to have children and it would die out because of that? Or is there another reason? Well, it's pretty complicated. It's something that I spend a whole chapter trying to figure out in the book. The, the basic explanation, although as, as I suggested, it's multidimensional, so there's a lot of different possible explanations. We could look at Jewish mysticism, and we can look at anthropological understandings and sociological understandings. But essentially, because these outcasts often served as a kind of symbolic scapegoat for whatever ills the Jewish community was experiencing, my hypothesis is that in this case as well, they served as a scapegoat upon which the community could symbolically transfer the evil of the epidemic. Although this is not literally or specifically said during the ritual of the wedding itself, I try to explain in the book how, again, on a symbolic level, the community was hoping that the epidemic would kind of transfer from the community as a whole to these outcasts of the community who were considered half dead anyway. They were kind of liminal figures who existed between the world of the living and the world of the dead as far as traditional religious understandings went. And so because they were already half dead, as it were, the cholera itself, the epidemic itself, which of course was understood to be from the world of the demons, from the world of evil, and because it caused so much death, it could then be transferred onto them and would hopefully then disappear. How does that sit halakhically? Well, it doesn't really have much connection to halakha, to Jewish law. There's a whole lot of Jewish magic that doesn't have any kind of direct connection to Jewish law. There were rabbis who justified and explained this ritual after the fact. It wasn't actually created by rabbis, but after the ritual had been going on for some decades, there were rabbis who tried to justify it by saying that it was a great good deed, a great mitzvah that the community was doing by marrying these people who otherwise would probably never have had the chance to enter into the state of marriage. And their explanation was that the community was 
hopefully kind of making it up to God, as it were, was always understood that when there was any kind of evil decree, like an epidemic, a gzela, as it was called in Yiddish, which was kind of a decree from on high, that it was understood that it was probably because of people's sins. And therefore, if the community could somehow make up for those sins and appease divine anger, then the epidemic might go away. And so that kind of rabbinic justification tried to appeal to this idea of tzedakah, of the Jewish value of charity. Whether or not most people who were engaging in the ritual itself understood it that way is not clear. My claim in the book is that this was probably an apologetic justification on the part of rabbis. In other words, this was a kind of defense of a folk ritual. Very often these outcasts who were married off were actually forced into this wedding. They probably would not otherwise have chosen it. And the community essentially used them for its own goals, for its own purposes. It's a very sort of Middle Ages way of looking at things, of course, isn't it? Right, exactly. I mean, when I talk about the cholera wedding, I think for many contemporary Jewish communities, it's quite shocking for them to even hear that there was such a ritual like this. Not that it's gone away, by the way, because we know that there was a COVID-19 wedding last April in a cemetery in the ultra-Orthodox community of B'nai Brak in Israel, so uh, it hasn't actually disappeared. But we do think of it very often as medieval, although the paradox about the collar wedding is that there is no medieval precedent for it. In fact, it was a modern invention that seems to have come about in the 1830s and then gained strength and momentum later in the 19th century. I also have something to say about that particular aspect of it in the book, which is essentially that this was a traditionalist answer to the modern attempt, meaning the scientific attempt to try to deal with epidemics, which in the, up until the very last decade of the 19th century, as far as cholera was concerned, was pretty much guesswork on the part of governmental authorities and medical experts because they didn't really understand what caused cholera. And so anything that they did, it might have an impact or it might not. And ordinary folks to want to rely on traditional methods to combat whatever problem it is that was prevalent in society. And this was a traditional method. Now, as I said, it didn't go back very far. It was only the early 19th century, but it was a very powerful magical ritual that spoke to a lot of people. And it spoke to the circumstances that they found themselves in, in the 1860s or the 1890s or the, or the 19 teens. And, uh, and for that reason, it was prevalent throughout Eastern Europe. Uh, not only there, in fact, it, we know that it actually spread to, to Eretz Israel, to, uh, to Palestine in the late 19th century. And we also find it happening in North America. So it continued into the 1920s, then reappeared during the Holocaust in a few places. And as I mentioned, seems to have, again, resurfaced during the COVID epidemic. Oh, I suppose when people's resistance is low, then they can pick up any sort of disease, can't they, of course? Why did they get married in a cemetery? Aha, uh -huh. yes, this is a very important part of it because Jewish weddings do not take place in cemeteries. That's a very strange place for a Jewish wedding. This really has to do with 
the anthropological explanation for the cholera wedding, which I connect with the idea of liminality, which is this kind of in-between space between one area of life or area of existence and another. And because the cemetery was obviously this liminal space between the world of the living and the world of the dead. And as I mentioned earlier, these outcasts, these marginalized folks in Jewish community were often also seen as somewhere in between the world of the living and the world of the dead. So this is an appropriate place to hold a magical wedding, a magical ritual that was supposed to really draw a sharp boundary between life and death and to essentially proclaim to the epidemic that it had done its work and that it was now supposed to leave and go back to where it came from. And in other words, meaning that those who were still alive were going to stay alive and those who had already been killed by the epidemic, obviously they were already part of the realm of the dead. So the cemetery is a pretty common space for magical ritual across different cultures. Uh, Among Christians, this was also a place where you could go if you needed to create an effective magical ritual. So for Jews to choose the cemetery as the, the space for the collar wedding was not unusual. And also there was a long tradition within Ashkenazic Jewish culture of going to the cemetery to pray at the graves of ancestors and sometimes even praying to the ancestors that they intercede on behalf of the living. Rabbis usually frowned upon that custom, but it was often done generation after generation. So there was also that idea that the cemetery was a place that you went when there was a catastrophe hanging over the head of the community. And the same was true in this case. Absolutely fascinating. And I have seen one of your talks. I'm sure everybody will enjoy the talk. Let me just say again, the talk's going to be The Cholera Wedding, Eastern European Jews' Magical Ritual to End an Epidemic on Thursday the 10th of June at 7.30pm. And to book, they can go to jw3.org.uk. I don't want you to give any more away because I'd like people to come and listen to it because it is absolutely fascinating. Natan, thank you very much for coming on the programme today. I hope the talk goes well, and maybe in the future we can talk once again. Yes, thanks, Tony. I would look forward to that very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. It's said that Israel faces Iran and the world in a Middle East with an uncertain America. So how will Israel confront Iran, given a Biden administration policy that is perceived by some in the region to accommodate Iran? And then what about that recent conflict in Gaza? Jonathan Paris is a London-based Middle East analyst and former Middle East fellow at a think tank, the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. He's currently a senior advisor at the Washington-based Chertoff Group and a board member of the London-based Global Diplomatic Forum. He appears regularly on television and radio, and he's appearing at JW3 on the 23rd of June. Jonathan, first of all, let's talk about Gaza and the conflict there. And it seemed to be a conflagration that is much more complicated than many people perceive when they're watching their TV news. It wasn't simply a case of rockets from Hamas into Israel and Israel retaliating. It was more complicated than that, wasn't it? Indeed it was. It was a bit of a surprise that Hamas decided to take advantage of some demonstrations in Jerusalem to launch six rockets at Jerusalem 
from Gaza. It's unheard of before. It's never happened in all the previous rounds. And that provoked an Israeli reaction that was much tougher than Hamas had expected when they launched those rockets. Had they known that Israel would react the way they did, they probably would not have launched those rockets. But in the end, it was like 4,000 rockets going over. Wasn't it a case of we want to be seen as the representatives of the Palestinians and having a go at Fatah, who run the West Bank? Absolutely. They, 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 the total number of rockets were about 4,000, slightly over 4,000. But keep in mind, 92% were intercepted by the Israeli Iron Dome, and 200 or plus didn't reach outside of Gaza, so you didn't have too much damage. And these are imprecise rockets, by the way. These are not precision rocket missiles, the kind that Hezbollah is accumulating slowly but surely. But was it also a case of the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, saying, well, other people are trying to form a government. I'm going to show that I'm the tough man and I'm Mr. Security as far as Israel is concerned. Well, I think that wasn't the motive. Israel, as I told you, did not set out to have another round in Gaza at this time. Bibi is known, Bibi as he's affectionately known, Benjamin Netanyahu is known to be very cautious when it comes to actual fight, fight, war, war. He, he's, a, he's a tough talker, and we'll get into that with Iran in a second. But when it comes to fighting, he's cautious. But you're quite right. Once, once it began, the chief of staff of the Israeli Armed Forces said, we've got to damage, we've got to diminish the capacity of Hamas to do this, to launch rockets. And they, they have far too many rockets, and they have this tunnel system, et cetera. Let's destroy it. Bibi was quite willing to do that with the knowledge that being in a mini-war would help Bibi politically by preventing the opposition, the so-called change movement, from forming a government against him. Why? Because the Arab party would not be willing to join in the middle of, of these riots in the Arab-Israeli cities of Lod and, and Acre and Jaffa. And, and two, Bennett, the, the right-wing head of Yamina, wasn't about to join a party with the peaceniks in it, Meretz and, and the Labour Party. He was going to have to veer to the right. So he pulled out, the Arab Party pulled out, and Lapid was left hanging there. But that was the really a fortuitous event for Bibi. I don't think he planned it, but he benefited from it. Those of us that have witnessed the conflicts over decades now will know that although Israel attack and they might take out loads of rockets, they'll get more rockets. They take out Hamas leaders, they get more Hamas leaders. So militarily, it's not necessarily going to work, is it? I go back and forth. It's true what you're saying. And it's even more true about Hezbollah, if there's another round in the north. Think of Hamas like a boxer, a boxer that's been bloodied in round nine, a boxer that can barely punch. That's Hamas today. They have really been punished. Their, their tunnel system called the Metro, like a subway system or tube system, was demolished. 100 kilometers of it was demolished. They, they sunk in millions of, of pounds building that uh, tunnel system. Gone. All their little gadgets of, of many uh, UAVs or drones, even submarine drones were destroyed. And, and so, you know, on the one hand, you're right. They will get the rockets back. 
They have clever engineers. They'll get concrete from the reconstruction effort and they'll divert the concrete to building, rebuilding the tunnels. But they are hurting right now. Let's talk about Iran, because they have a lot of influence in this area. We know through the Abraham Accords that Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia do not like Iran. That's why they've come to some sort of a deal with Israel. How is this likely to pan out now that the Biden administration might want to have some sort of deal with Iran following, you know, Trump's political demise. Yeah. If we didn't have Gaza, where there's been a little bit of a bromance between Biden and Bibi, they actually work together. And Biden, to their credit, gave the Israelis 10 to 11 days to do serious damage to Hamas once the war started. But uh, put that aside, there's going to be some rough times ahead between Israel and Biden administration, because it's clear that Biden wants to return to the JCPOA, and Israel says that's anathema. That's like paving a way to the assembly line construction of bombs in five, six, seven years. It it just won't prevent Iran from going nuclear. And if anything, the the hate of Jews that we've seen here on Finchley Road, in Los Angeles, in New York, everywhere, probably reinforces the notion in Israel that a nuclear Iran rationally would not use a bomb against Israel. But when it comes to Jews, who knows what the Ayatollahs might be thinking? So I think we we really have a problem. for Israel has a problem with the JCPOA, and Israel has a problem with Iran. The JCPOA is the deal that the Obama administration did with Iran and that more or less Trump ripped up supported by Israel, which most of the world, including the United Kingdom, said, well, they're not so sure it's a good idea to rip that up, and, and maybe it would have been better. What do you feel? Well, it, I always, I pointed out to one of the architects back in 2014, or early 2015, you cannot allow research and development of centrifuges. Those are the components that, that make the uranium help it spin. For some reason, the deal permitted the Iranians to do research and development and develop more advanced centrifuges, which can spin out uranium much faster. But they just said, the deal just said, you can't activate them. You can't operate them. Well, so they develop them, they put them in a a storage room, and then when they feel like it, they take them out, which is precisely what they did in the last six months. So that's just one of many flaws. The other is the sunset clause. And I could go on and on. So I, I think We're going to be in for some tough times, which is why I'm speaking about it on June 23rd, around the time when there might be a deal. There might not, but, you know, there might. uh, Briefly, it's difficult, isn't it? Because we're dealing with, or Israel is dealing with a different administration, a different Secretary of State. Blinken is very different to any of Trump's Secretaries of State. He seems to be more of a diplomat. And do you think there'll be some sort of fudge in the end? Yeah, Blinken is very, he's Jewish, by the way. His stepfather, Sam Pizar, was a, a, a survivor of a concentration camp who went on to some great fame in, ho- in Hollywood. I think he, he wrote the transcript of the Jaws movie. So Blinken comes from a very a cosmopolitan background, grew up in Paris. 
But he's pretty solid on Israel. I haven't seen any of that Obama-type rhetoric about Israel from Blinken. So I'm pleasantly surprised with him. But you're absolutely right. He is not Pompeo. Pompeo was really, that was Trump's Secretary of State until the end, was really in, in Israel's camp. Jonathan Paris, thank you very much indeed. And Jonathan's talk is at JW3. It's on Zoom on Wednesday afternoon, the 23rd of June at 2 p.m. Jonathan, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the Jewish Views podcast. Thank you for having me. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Time now for another culinary bit of inspiration, courtesy of our Jewish domestic goddess, Denise Phillips. Denise, what have you got for us this month? We are fast approaching the three weeks, the time between the 17th of Thomas and the 9th of Av. This year, corresponding to the 27th of June to the 18th of July, a time in the Hebrew calendar where Jews around the world mourn the destruction of the first and second temple. Some people follow a vegetarian diet at this time, especially during the last nine days from the 1st of Av to the 9th. Grazing boards is the latest trend in eating, which combines all your favourite nibbles and arranged on a large platter to share. It is the modern version of an embellished cheese board. Keeping it vegetarian or even vegan is a wonderful way to adhere to this custom. Tips for grazing boards. Choose a board to reflect the number of guests. Check guest intolerances and keep separate so it is suitable for everyone. Include a variety of dips, crackers, bread, pita sticks and so on. And add seasonal fruits like berries and grapes with no pips or stones. No one wants an unexpected trip to the dentist. Keep your fruit and vegetables looking natural. For example, cherry tomatoes on the vine, grapes on their branches and radishes with their stalks. They look more like how Mother Nature made them. If you decide to use fruit or vegetables that oxidise quickly i.e. that go brown quickly, for example, slice pear or apple, dip into a little lemon juice to preserve. Use small bowls or ramekins for nuts, olives and chutneys. And grazing boards can include miniature foods of all varieties, like artichoke hearts, mini tacos, mini wraps, fluffles, samosas, barracas, not just dips and crackers. Fill any gaps with fresh bay leaves, rosemary sprigs to decorate and provide colour and texture with different raw and cooked vegetables that are easy to pick up and eat. Daily items like olives, stuffed peppers are great and work well, but they may need cocktail sticks or toothpicks and napkins to make it less awkward to eat. And always supply a small plate or dish for rubbish, whether it is the green top from your strawberry or the toothpick to spear the marinated olive, your guests need somewhere to put their rubbish. And since you can use whatever you like, don't worry about a recipe. People are eating and enjoying with their eyes. Just make it interesting, colourful and adventurous. Enjoy. Fantastic. As a, well, pescatarian, eight fish myself, I think that sounds rather splendid. And for that and more information on anything that Denise talks about, you can always go to her website, which is jewishcookery.com. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the month. And this time it comes courtesy of Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London, Mazorti Synagogue. Bamidbar. The Book of Numbers, which we'll read all the way through the month of June, is the book 
not just of countings, but of journeyings, all the way to the borders of the promised land, as the last portion in it, Mas'e says, listing the stopping places on that journey. And here we are on a journey of a different kind, one I think not envisaged back then in the book of Numbers, a journey out of lockdown, we hope for good. It finds us in such different places. And in my community, I know people who are waiting to celebrate, to be out there and to have the joy which wasn't possible, who are saying, Roni Vasimchi, I want to sing and I want to rejoice and I want to be back in the world. And as I write this, I'm looking at a beautiful day and a beautiful garden. And there have been some of the sounds of groups gathering in the way that we couldn't beforehand. And yet at the same time, I'm deeply aware of others for whom the loneliness of this time has left its mark on the heart. And those people who have lost those nearest and dearest and whom the journey back into life is marked by those who are not by their side and who are in places of sorrow and anguish and aloneness. And the art of journeying will be to see, can we journey together? Shevet achim yachdav, that we can return to life both the joy of life, but have place in our hearts for the sorrow of life and take each other by the hand and go forwards together back out into the world. Thank you to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Mazorti Synagogue for our rabbinic thought for the month. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. All that's left for me to do is to say thank you to our guests, Rachel Grunwald, Mia Fell, Natan Meyer, Jonathan Paris and Denise Phillips. And of course, thank you for listening. You can always listen to this or indeed any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with JW3. From me, Phil Dave, and the whole team, including Clive Roslin, John Kay, Kate Fulton, Tony Honickberg, and Vivian Krieger, do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye. <laughs>